Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the Public School Administration at Dalhousie University. Is there a bromance between Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Ford? Kind of looks that way. And most Canadians support the union demands for wage premiums, but they're much more divided on higher pay. John Rowe, Research Associate with Angus Reid, will join us and talk about that. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the heat is being turned up in Ottawa these days because of the, uh, the strike, of course, into the sixth day right now. The Public Service Alliance of Canada uh, have picket lines up. They're talking about moving those. We're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, but the other uh, cause of uh, the heat this early in, in the spring in Ottawa is uh, is the rift between uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, of course, and Pierre Polyev. Uh, you remember in the uh, last federal election, and Aaron O'Toole was the uh, the conservative leader at the time, of course, he wanted to be prime minister. And and somebody in the media, I forget which one uh, reporter it was, actually asked uh, Mr. O'Toole about the prime minister uh, as his enemy. And, and O'Toole said, he's not my enemy, he's my rival, which was an interesting observation. Uh, now, the relationship between Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev, it's more like the enemy thing going on. Uh, even last week, for instance, uh, during a good news story, the announcement, of course, of the uh, the plant going on, the Volkswagen plant, uh, the Prime Minister took that opportunity to take a shot at his rival. Like I said, Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, no relation to the Progressive Conservatives of Ontario, came out... Sorry, that was a joke. You can chuckle. Um, <laughs> came out and said that this project was a waste of money. Well, Karen, you have your work cut out for you. Because confident countries invest in their workers. And on and on it went. Uh, the Karen he was referring to, of course, was a local uh, MP, conservative MP, who uh, was there for the announcement, too. Uh, I don't know what's going to come of this, but we'll ask our next guest uh, what the, the, the atmosphere is like up in the nation's capital. Uh, please welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Laurie, great to have you back with us again. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. What's going on with these two guys? I mean, this is beyond politics right now. And and and, and I don't know, if you look at some of the comments from both of them right now, uh, uh, this, there's a real opportunity here for both of them to just pick it. If this is personal. It's got nothing to do with politics or policy, does it? I think that's right. I mean, I think there's there are layers to it. Like, I think there is a sort of um, palpable dislike on a personal level between the two of them. And I think this also relates to the fact that they're both polarizing people. And so it's not just that they don't like one another. It's that their, you know, their supporters, their relative, their respective supporters really don't like the other guy. And it's almost like they feel like people feel like they know them. These two politicians in particular have tend to get this sort of personal reaction to them. And so I think that's, that's part of it is that, is that they're aware of that. And so when one of them pokes at the other, it kind of gets their own face all riled up. And so there's, there's kind of that part of it. But I think too, um, there, there's, you know, the prime minister is, is going to a local riding, making an announcement like this and saying, you know what, this is amazing. And Pierre Polyev doesn't want you to have this. And so clearly there's a sense between the two of them, like there's, there seems to be more awareness now on Justin Trudeau's part that people might actually vote for Pierre Polyev. And so I think he wants to draw this attention to the fact that 
there's an investment decision being made. It's going to have huge implications for, for local riding. There's something to be excited about here. And Pierre Polyev doesn't think this is a good idea. You know, in a, in a roundabout way, I mean, we've seen bitter rivals. I mean, I know Pearson and Diefenbaker way, way back in the 60s was like that. And, and we can go all the way back to, to John and McDonald and Cartier and so many others. But the, as you say, this seems to get personal uh, and almost juvenile, frankly, from time to time. I mean, they both seem to want to accuse the other of hanging out with elites. Uh, you know, the prime minister with his uh, his fancy friends that hold the resorts in Jamaica and and. Now the prime minister counters with, "Well, Pierre, you had to run to your rich guy, your friend uh, Elon Musk, to get to, to take a shot at the CBC because you're not strong enough to do this." And I mean, it's it's really kind of schoolyard stuff, isn't it? It's it comes across that way, absolutely. This is not, um, you know, two informed politicians having a sophisticated debate about differences in policy. This is, you know, it it does have a weird schoolyard feel to it. And they just want to poke at one another and insult one another. And But this stuff about uh, the rich people is interesting because I think historically in Canada, class was not the most significant political um, factor, right? It was never, like, we've never been like the U.S. in that way. And in terms, like... In the, in the U.S., class is such a huge part of how you vote and how you orient yourself politically. It's a big deal. But here, it's always been more like region or language or something like that. But now we are seeing a rise of class politics in Canada, which I don't think is a particularly welcome one at all. But we can see how even the political parties, how they're, how they're appealing to voters and trying to broaden their base it's not like it typically, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit atypical for us, I think. We can see Pierre Polyev trying to, again, like, you know, take on this war against rich people. He's trying to appeal to workers. He's sort of trying to appeal to some of the more significant um, support for the NDP. It's interesting. I don't know where this is all going to land, but it seems like as we're moving a bit towards, you know, more class-based politics, the political parties are responding to that, and they're not occupying their traditional space. Yeah, it's it's uncomfortable. I think it's uncomfortable for a lot of Canadians too. I mean, because he really he's not just targeting Trudeau; he's targeting rich people, uh, as Jagmeet Singh has. But I mean, that's traditional for for NDP, and uh, it's a different circumstance, though. I mean, uh, the stats I've seen on this, Laurie, because you know when Mr. Polyev and Mr. Singh started doing this, we did a little research, and I think it's definitely just over eleven percent of of the wealthy, quote unquote, wealthy people. Is inherited wealth. The rest of them, are yeah. the over ninety other percent, are people that work their butts off and, and got they got wealthy because of that, and they employ people and, and you know they make contributions to charities and everything else. But he wants to lump them all in there. And I guess when you know there are rough economic times such as we're going through right now, you got to pick an enemy and say it's their fault. And so you know that they seem to be an easy target. I guess. I think the way that you just put that is really important. When times get tough, people pick an enemy. And historically, that has led to some seriously damaging conclusions. And I think that, um, you know, at this point we are seeing, and we saw during COVID-19 too, when there started to be like these openings in the social consensus. And so, I mean, it was, there was, there's no way you can make an argument that there wasn't a consensus in Canada about the importance of science, getting a vaccine, wearing a mask, the, all that kind of stuff there was, you know, over 90% agreement with that kind of thing, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. you can see, not that not that everybody agreed, but there was a huge, you know, very palpable consensus that people understood, um, you know, this is how we want to manage this on the basis of science. But you started to see um, a distance between people 
over time based on how you did economically during COVID-19. Could you, you know, did you lose your job or not? Could you keep up with your mortgage? Could you keep up with your rent? Could you work from home or did you have to risk, you know, take all of the health related risks associated with going outside if you kept your job and go to your, you know, go to your work. And so it seems like that the kind of circumstances and the, the ground game for some divisive politics was laid. And now you hear Pierre Pauly of, yeah, like going after rich people. And it's not that he's going after rich people for policy reasons. He's going after rich people because they're rich. And he's trying to say Justin Trudeau is just this kind of frat boy who hangs out with his friends and doesn't want to run the country. And it's a, it, so he's sort of trying to, I think, attach it to something that's relevant politically, but it's just, it's division. And it's, you know, it's, it's not good. Well, and, and I guess the thing that troubles an awful lot of Canadians is that it, it seems to be a reflection of, of the way things have evolved or devolved, I suppose, in the United States over the last five or six years with the, the Trump administration and things of this nature, too. It is, it's the politics of division. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't know where it's going to lead us, but it's, uh, it's, it's not a good situation, not a good place to be. Uh, speaking of which, uh, you're right in the thick of it there. It's day six right now of the, uh, the strike now by Public Service Alliance of Canada. Uh, they've started back and forth with the accusations, you know, saying, you know, this is only going on because the other side are, are dragging their heels. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to find a settlement. Uh, they're trying to increase pickets and, and I guess try to have more what they call effective pickets right now. What, what are you hearing? What's what's the word on the street there, Laurie? Well, word on the street right now is it's pouring rain. So I'm not, <laughs> not sure how, um, Great day for picketing. Oh, you bet. Yeah. At least it was nice last week. Uh, yeah. It's it, it seemed like uh, over the weekend, like the messaging was really kind of negative from both sides. Like yeah. I think it was late Friday that those statistics came out. Um, I saw it in the National Post that um, not, uh, I don't remember the exact statistics, but essentially not a lot of people voted. And they're so like they're, they're in this strike position and they, you know, this is not with an overwhelming uh, amount of participation from the membership, right? And so they got the strike vote, but not with a huge amount of voter participation. And so it kind of takes a bit of the, the wind out of the sails of, of the PSAC side. On the other hand, you've got Mona Fortier doing the Sunday shows and saying, you know, we've got a, we're committed to a fresh deal and or a fair deal and we're doing that. And, you know, each side is blaming the other. There's this intent to kind of get the prime minister involved and oh boy. So it doesn't look like anything has moved anywhere positive. Well, and, and therein lies part of the problem. And, and I, I mean, I haven't seen any national surveys on this, but I mean, we've talked about it a lot on the program, of course, over the last number of days, because it was imminent. And then, of course, since it happened. Uh, and, and I'm amazed, actually, but a lot of the feedback I'm hearing here uh, is against the union. I, I mean, they don't like the government. Yeah. Nobody likes the government these days, period. But they're just <laughs> yeah. saying, yeah, we're all, we're all in rough economic times. But, you know, uh, you guys want a 13% raise? Are you kidding? Uh, you know, and there, and there just seems to be a negative pushback to that right now. Like, you know, we can understand people trying to make up ground after the, the pandemic, et cetera, but don't be greedy. Well, that's, I mean, people are totally going to think, you know, what is the, what are the shots that I would get this? If this is what I tried to negotiate for in my own work. And yeah, people see the demands of the union as being either unreasonable or, you know, greedy or not in line with what would be appropriate or, you know, there's, there's, it's going to be hard, I think, to build consistent public support. That doesn't mean nobody supports them. It just means I don't think, you know, and I don't think there's going to be overwhelming, um, you know, unified pressure on the government to, to settle this in favor of what the union wants. The other thing I was thinking, the, the way PSAC is, right, there's 155,000 members. They're spread across the country. 
And so you don't have 155,000 people on strike in Ottawa. <laughs> like you have, mm-hmm. you know, like the picket lines are, are scattered across the country. And that means that everybody is going to be feeling this, right? Like it's not just one office or one, one place. And so, you know, if you're waiting for your tax rebate, it's, you know, it's going to affect everybody. But it also kind of has the, the effect possibly of di- diluting the physical presence of the strike. And so you don't have, like, depending on where you are, and there could be some areas where this, it absolutely is, like, the presence is overwhelming. But, you know, walking or driving through Ottawa, you do so largely unobstructed. So I don't know how much that's going to make a big difference, but maybe it won't. But it's, it's an interesting way that it's breaking down in the sense that the membership is so spread out across the country. Well, and I think the impact and, and I think the anger that's going to grow, and it will if this goes on any further, uh, is going to be, as you say, how it's going to impact individuals. You know, where's my income tax yeah. return? I need the money. Uh, you know, hey, I want my passport renewed, and you guys aren't going to be able to do that. As a matter of fact, that was the message we got from the government, wasn't it? Don't renew your passport uh, because it's just not going to happen. That that anger is going to grow, but I don't hear too many people saying, come on, government, just give them the money and let's get back to work. No, I, exactly. In fact, I, it seems like there's a kind of back and forth over whose fault this is. And there seems to be a space here for the government to say, you know, the unions are the unions, the ones not working. <laughs> they're, they're the reason yeah. that you're not getting your passport. It's not our fault. And so there is a kind of like, I think, a, something different going on here in terms of the public reactions. And it's giving the government some space to not feel to, to not be responding to this as though it's the most critical, urgent issue, which is going to be interesting how that plays out, because, of course, this will this will amass at a certain point, right? Like if people are waiting for something, um, they're wait- if, if you're waiting for both your rebate and your passport, you're going to be pretty ticked off. Mm-hmm. And that kind of service delivery side will, will very much, you know, get, get to people over time. But again, as you say, who will they blame for it? Well, and it's interesting. I know we're just about out of time here, but you're right. You, you watch the, uh, the political shows on Sunday, uh, and the government, the Treasury Board in particular, is taking a much more aggressive stand on this. They usually just say, well, we're trying to find some middle ground, and they're basically throwing darts right back at them right now. So I, I know they always do polling about these things, and uh, maybe maybe they're sensing that the public mood is uh, is not necessarily on their side, but certainly not on the other side either. I think you're right. And I also I think that the government has to be thinking, whatever we do negotiate with this union, you know, this is only one union. It's the largest, yeah, exactly. but there's still lots of lots of others. And so it, they can't just think of this in terms of the immediate negotiations. They have to be thinking more broadly. And so it's in their interest to test the waters of public support here and to see exactly what they're, you know, what they can, how far they can push, uh, whether their own rhetoric is going to build um, some support for them or just dilute any support that's there for the union. Like this is definitely a, you know, the government's playing the long game. Well, uh, we'll have to leave it there. We are just about out of time, but it's going to be interesting to see. I think this is going to be a very pivotal week. Uh, rainy days and Mondays always get us down. Uh, try to get through this with Laurie, and we'll talk again soon, okay? Sounds like a plan. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. At the beginning of the show, we played the uh, little clip of uh, the Prime Minister uh, taking a shot at Pierre Polyev at the Volkswagen announcement last week. And which I think underscores the the relationship or lack thereof between those two. On the other side, that uh, was just moments later in that very same speech that uh, the prime minister talked about his uh, well his good friend, I guess, Premier Doug Ford. Here's, here's that announcement. Doug, it is so good to be here with you. We it seems like we are uh, making more and more of these announcements together because uh, we understand the extraordinary advantage uh, that workers here in Ontario and across Canada have to offer to the world that we are seeing how 
uh, stepping up, working together, creates that vision for the future that Canadians, in a time of anxiety, and Ontarians worried about what's going on everywhere around the world, can suddenly see, wow, there's a bright future for us, and we can see ourselves in it. That's what Ontarians are feeling every time we stand up together. That's what Canadians are seeing. And we are building it when we work together. Wow. Uh, that's the Prime Minister speaking about uh, Premier Doug Ford. Uh, joining us to talk about that and a lot of other things, including the, the Volkswagen announcement. Uh, pleased to welcome back to the program, Sabrina Nanji. Sabrina is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, uh, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Happy Monday. And to you, too. Uh, I know that's kind of an oxymoron, but we'll go with it for the time being anyway. Uh, what, what about this relationship between the Prime Minister and the Premier of Ontario? I mean, the, both of them are, are usually characterized as very polarizing figures. Uh, one is staunch liberal, one is staunch conservative. Uh, but this, this political bromance that they have here is, is rather unusual, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of been a bit of an off-again, on-again relationship. Uh, I think, you know, just listening to Trudeau, uh, you know, just now, it, it sort of sounded like a very campaign-style speech, right? And yeah, I yeah. think when it's con con politically convenient to both parties, um, they like to play nice with each other. Now, of course, as, as Trudeau mentioned, you know, both the province and the feds have been making it rain for electric vehicles. There's a ton of announcements. Uh, this Volkswagen one is, is a huge one. Um, and, and I think we're, we're going to expect to see a lot more of that. Uh, this is maybe a policy area where both, you know, capital L liberals and conservatives are, are aligned on, um, I, you know, not only is it a climate friendly move uh it's also an economic move too and so i think that you know that there is some common ground here but of course there's this theory in ontario where we vote one way provincially and the other way the opposite way uh federally and and that's the case right now you know we've got conservatives at queen's park and ontario you know basically made the the trudeau government on, on the hill you know ontario has a lot of seats up for grabs federally as well and so i, I think that this wasn't really surprising it's more so just the the timing of it uh when these guys are, are playing nice and when they see it's politically advantaged to to fight each other a little bit because you know being enemies has also worked in both of their favors. Um, I think it was also significant that Trudeau kind of uh, separated Ford from the federal conservatives uh, and Pierre Polyev saying that, you know, Doug Ford is not the same. And I think, you know, Ford was probably happy with that um, comparison or, you know, not not comparison. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, su suggesting that the premier is a progressive conservative as opposed to Mr. Polyev. Uh, it's it's like I say, there, it's, there's an acerbic edge to just about everything these two guys say. But but your point's well taken. I mean, it's it's politically and I, I suppose economically uh, convenient for the prime minister and the premier to get along, especially with an announcement like this. And uh, and and let's face it, they're trying to support this. And I know they're both their speeches on on Friday. Uh, in some ways, I mean, they were you know patting each other on the back, but in another way, trying to justify this because the the major criticism that we're hearing about the deal, of course, Sabrina, as you guys have been reporting, Queen's Park Observer, is hey, you guys overpaid for this. I mean, it's great that you got it, but really, that much money, and uh, and uh, I guess they share that responsibility and share the defense of it, don't they? 
You're right. I mean, you know, $13 billion in subsidies for Volkswagen is no, you know, chump change at all. Um, but obviously the feds in the province thought that, you know, they had to make a bold move, if I can put it that way, do something big that was going to attract this automaker um, to Canada rather than going south of the border to the States. Don't forget, this is their first battery plant outside of Europe. Um, but I think it remains to be seen how this deal is going to, to roll out. I mean, it, there's a lot of questions as to whether it was worth it because of course can this you know um give the manufacturing sector that that boost that it needs um i think you know the um the auto parts manufacturing association flavio volpe had had kind of uh you know framed this well i think he said that it's a it's a big win for sure but you know people should be focusing more on what volkswagen has to actually do so you know that's 200 billion dollars in output um, that the company is going to have to meet. Like there are some caveats and conditions here uh, in order to secure that that full payout. I think jobs, like th that was another um, uh, highlight of this. And so I think that's kind of why we were hearing the politicians emphasize those parts of this um, more because it's, it's not a small chunk of change. But the question is like, is it even enough um, to do, uh, to, to revive the auto, the automotive sector? Well, and, and Minister Champagne, the innovation minister, I think was uh, on that theme too. Uh, the comments he made on Friday, essentially, well, they're not getting a nickel until this is plan the plant is built. Uh, you know, in other words, we're not going to start writing them checks now. And I think two or three of them, Mr. Uh, Mr. Champagne and certainly the prime minister and the premier uh, emphasize that, that, you know, this is not a gravy train and, they, you know, they're going to get this thing up and going. And and your point, this is a huge enterprise. I mean, they, they all talked about the footprint, not, not the carbon footprint, but the footprint of, of the actual facility. Uh, and it's the size of what about 12 football fields or something. I mean, this is going to this is a place going to have its own area code. This is a major investment. And, and you know, what, what is it? Three thousand jobs immediately, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. And and those are like the the bright spots here, I think. And I think, you know, Canadians are, are probably willing to um, bite the bullet on the 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 big uh, hole in the budget this is going to create. Uh, but I think eventually the ends could justify the means here, but it's, it's just going to be how this is all rolled out. And if it's really going to be, you know, enough of, of what needs to happen um, in order to kind of revive the auto, the automotive sector. And clearly, you know, governments are seeing electric vehicles as the way to do that. Well, let's talk about uh, the the bigger picture here for a second. I'm I'm pretty sure that both the prime minister and the premier were glad to to be in St. Thomas on Friday to kind of get away from some of the other things that are are tugging at them these days, especially with the premier. Uh, the Ontario Place announcement uh, and the uh, the the science center uh, got a lot of pushback on that. Is that's I'm assuming that a debate that's not finished yet, is it? No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, this morning we've just got a uh, word as well from Global that Therma, you know, this, uh, the company that's behind this hotly contested water park and spa that's going to be at Ontario Place has now signed a 95 year lease uh, with the province. So that basically suggests, you know, for the next century, we'll be having a, a, the, the spa and water park uh, down at the waterfront. Um, I, I think, you know, what has been the most surprising about all of this is just the lack of transparency. Um, of course, you know, we know these are uh, high level deals, but there's really not a lot of explanation as to how 
it came about, what was proposed when, what the Florida government agreed to when, and, and that sort of thing. And we know that, um, you know, cabinet deliberations are typically shielded from public scrutiny. But at the end of the day, I think the, the more sunlight we can shine on this, the better for the Florida government. They're now being accused of trying to create a cover and a distraction and doing this Hail Mary move uh, to, to move the Science Center down there as well, um, which is also kind of, you know, backfired on them a little bit because, of course, there's blowback with, with that as well. And so I think this is really just the beginning of a lot of controversy around these plans for Ontario Place. And, you know, for better or worse, the more light that can be shed on this, the better. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only reporter that's filing freedom of information requests because the government is really not um, not saying much here. And I think, you know, kudos to Global for figuring this out. Uh, they certainly, you know, won't be the first ones or, or the last ones, I should say, to, to try and dig in and get some more information for the public on, on how this is all happening. Well, exactly. I mean, and this is not a new discussion, as, as you guys have been reporting. I mean, this has been going on for generations about what to do with Ontario Place. And at one time, it was going to be a casino that was going to be down there, and that, that got shelled pretty quickly. Uh, but I guess what did surprise an awful lot of people is that this announcement came along. In other words, it's clear somebody's been making deals here behind closed doors, uh, and we get the end result. We don't know who's talking to whom at this stage. We don't know what's involved in this. And you're, that, you're right, that word transparency is one that keeps coming up in the debate here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we can all agree that something needs to be done with this white elephant that's on the waterfront. There's been proposals, you know, that, that range widely, a casino, um, housing. And I do agree that the Ford government probably, you know, did a good thing by making a decision and there's a lot of proposals, you know, something has to stick. I think that they could probably do themselves a favor by shedding more light on why they made these decisions, how it's coming about. Um, because I think to the public anyway, it seems like they are, um, you know, flying by the seat of their pants. Obviously, there's talk about because of the Toronto mayoral election and, um, you know, talk about Ontario Place at that level that Premier Doug Ford was sort of forced to to make this announcement maybe sooner than he wanted. But of course, you know, to the public, it's uh, just maybe, you know, at best a coincidence, the timing of all of this. And at worst, I think people are probably putting on their cynical hats right now and thinking, you know, what's going on here? What's the real story? Because it all does seem to be moving very fast um, with not a lot of transparency uh, on what's going on. Uh, just got a few seconds left. That's obviously going to be a story you're going to be following up on. What else is going on at Queen's Park this week? Uh, well, the house is back. Uh, I think I'm waiting to hear more about the this new provincial park. Uh, mm. there, that was teased in the budget. You know, they. Uh, I, th yeah. I think it's a probably a good move, but there's a lot of questions as to is it going to be used. You know, um, and of course, environmentalists are upset, saying that this really doesn't make up for what's happening with the greenbelt and opening that up for development. Uh, interesting stuff at Queens Park as always, and we'll be watching for your reporting on that. So, thanks so much for the Sabrina. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Sabrina Nanji, publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we mentioned right at the beginning of the program, uh, the big story in Ottawa and, and the concern right across the country is the uh, the strike by uh, Canada's largest labor union into its sixth day right now. Uh, this is, of course, the, the Public Service Alliance, uh, who represent about 155,000 public service workers. John Kennedy has the update for us. More than 100,000 of its staff remain on strike, some of whom will move their picket lines today to strategic locations more likely to have 
have an impact on the federal government. National President Chris Aylward says Ottawa presented an offer on Saturday afternoon, which the union countered with its own proposal that same day. Yet the Office of Treasury Board President Mona Fortier says it made a second proposal on Saturday that the union had not responded to by late Sunday. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. So where are they on that? And just as importantly, how do we feel about this? Uh, well, our good friends at Angus Reid have done some research on that. And uh, to delve into that, so pleased to welcome to the program John Rowe. John is the research associate with Angus Reid. Uh, John, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Uh, there's the, usually a polarization when these sorts of things occur, especially a union as large as this uh, that could be as impactful as this. Now, it, six days is, is, I suppose, early days, although it would be nice if this was the end of the strike, probably not going to be. What, what do you get? What sense do you get from Canadians here as this starts to evolve? Yeah, so we did some polling kind of uh, just at the early, the first two days of the strike uh, last week. Uh, asking how people felt uh, about the various demands that were kind of made public as far as what the union was looking for in a new contract. Uh, so things like the wage premiums for night shifts and overtime, the right to work from home is another big one, uh, 4.5 annual wage increase over three years, uh, some more paid leave um, and a stipend for employees who speak Indigenous languages in the workplace. Uh, and we found that Canadians were somewhat split and more supportive of some of these demands than others. Uh, 65% of Canadians believe that the wage premiums, uh, they, that's something they would support for the PSAC workers. Uh, 55% said the work from home. And then the other ones are a bit more kind of divided between the Canadians. And that's an interesting distinction because when we talk about, you know, wages, uh, and we'll get into the, the the demand by the union and the, the counteroffer from the, the government in just a second here. Uh, but the ones that seem to have gained most favor, though, from your polling are, as you say, it's the value added. In other words, uh, there are an awful lot of places, workplaces right now, that offer a premium for night shift because of its inconvenience and a number of other factors. So I, I can understand how a lot of Canadians would say, yeah, that sounds fair. Uh, and the same thing if you bring, you know, an added talent, like you say, if speaking in Indigenous uh, languages, uh, you know, that's helpful. This is public service, and we want to be able to offer services, not just in English and French, but, you know, in, in other languages to, so that customers can can be uh, dealt with properly, and so that's okay. Uh, so I'm not surprised by that. Although it seems as if there's a political divide here too. Uh, the ones who seem most opposed to this were, were former conservative voters, uh, where the left-leaning liberal and, and NDP supporters seem to think that the, this is okay now. Yeah, the people who voted conservative in 2021, uh, the only demand that they supported at more than half was uh, the wage premiums. Otherwise, uh, less than one third kind of said that they would concede those demands if they were the federal government. Uh, both, as you said, liberal and past NDP voters were much more uh, on board and NDP kind of more so than past liberal voters. So, yeah, it does seem that if uh, if you're kind of a conservative, you're a little bit more reluctant to kind of give in to these uh, requests by the union. You're kind of, I guess, more on the side of the federal government on this and that you're trying to maybe hold the line a little more in these negotiations. The other one that jumped out at me here, and I'm glad you guys included this in your questioning, uh, is is the ability to work from home. I mean, you know, this is something that uh, back in the old days, we always used to say, you know, someday most of us are going to be working from home. The technology is going to be there. We say, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, but the pandemic, of course, accelerated all of that. And a lot of people have been working from home for the last little while. And a lot of them don't want to go back to the office. A lot of them are pretty comfortable there and feel as if they're contributing and doing what they want to do. Uh, and, and this seems to be a sticking point right now. If With the results of, of your research here, is, is this going to be a, a demand that we're going to hear more and more now as contracts come up, uh, especially from public sector workers right now, that, hey, this working from home thing is it's kind of cool? 
Yeah, I, 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 I personally kind of think so. And uh, the the workers were uh, kind of requested to go back to the office by the federal government uh, a couple months ago prior to this kind of strike mm-hmm. action. And when that kind of request like kind of came to fruition, uh, they demonstrated at that time, even prior to this strike. So there is already kind of been a lot of tension over this request to work from home, uh, sorry, go back to the office at least two or three days a week. Uh, We actually did some polling recently on what Canadians prefer uh, among employed Canadians. uh, More than half would prefer to work from home most of the time. Uh, And only 25% of Canadians that are working right now say they would want to work from the office all the time. So there is like kind of in the general public as too that most people would kind of prefer to be working from home. Uh, and so you kind of see that, I think, with with these kind of demands from the union in these negotiations. Well, and because uh, we've heard the same sort of things. I mean, we talk about it on the program, obviously, and we talk to your folks at Angus Reid to, to try to get a sense as to where people are on that. And uh, it's almost like it's the new normal now. Like, yeah, we can do this and we're effective from this. And because uh, I remember the, the survey you guys did when they started, when the federal government said, okay, and I, I love your, your, your word Smith here. They requested that they come back to to the office. I think it was, might've been a little stronger than that, which is why they, yes. they, they, they demonstrated against it. Uh, but the question that, that they're asking is, well, why do we need to? Why? Because you, you're paying rent here and that's not our fault uh, that you guys, you know, renting this huge building or built this big, huge building. We're comfortable where we are. Uh, and, and I think this is going to be a real sticking point going forward, not just with this contract, but with other public sector contracts coming up. Yeah, and I think for some of the for some people that got hired during the pandemic, they might have never actually gone into the office either. So it's uh, it's a completely different kind of culture and expectation uh, than what they kind of experienced when they were first got hired by by the federal government or in, in some cases private sector employees. And that was kind of overall the demand that I think Canadians uh, supported more than than the other ones, kind of uh, the right to work from home. So it was only 36 percent of Canadians that they were opposed to the federal government, uh, uh, I guess, conceding that demand to the union. So there is kind of a lot of people out there who look at this and, and feel like that's kind of a reasonable ask as well. One of the ones that I think is getting some pushback, though, and you guys included this in the survey, too, are the wage demands. I'm not talking about the wage premiums now, but just the plain wage demands. There's a huge gap between these two, isn't there, John? I mean, uh, the, the government offer and, and, and what the union is looking for here. Yeah, so the, the union is asking for, at least on their initial demand, uh, was a 4.5% annual wage increase for three years. And I think it's important to note, too, that these negotiations have been going on since June 2021. So this would be a retroactive pay increase. Uh, and as we know that the last year, uh, the inflation was higher than 4.5%. Uh, and it kind of started in in, tw- in 2022 it was higher than 4.5%. So they're not they're asking these demands are actually not actually going to keep up with inflation once they if they if they get them from the federal government. Uh, but there were a lot of Canadians that were opposed by it, opposed to this. So only 48% say yes, I, I support that ask. Uh, 40% say they're opposed. Uh, so there's a lot kind of more divide on that one. And uh, looking at our own data in the past, so we've we asked Canadians, okay, when a couple months ago, uh, when was the last time you got a raise? Uh, and only 55% of Canadians that are currently employed said they've had a raise in the last 12 months. So there's a lot of Canadians out there who haven't had a raise recently uh, and are looking at this and, and I think feeling maybe that this is uh, a step too far for them. Uh, I'm getting the same reaction, which is why I was so 
interested to see your results uh, from your survey. And it's the same idea. Um, you know, a lot of Canadians got no raises for the last three years. Uh, and anyone who did, it sure wasn't 4.5% annually for mm-hmm. three years in a row. So, and, and I'm hearing the same sort of thing. Like, okay, fine. It's a contract. You probably want to get more money. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, this is a bridge too far, I think, for some of them. I, I, I used the comparator this morning on the show. Uh, how, I, I wonder how the Ontario public service workers are feeling since they've had a, a, a 1.1% increase, you know, ceiling for the last number of years. And they think, you know, you guys are dreaming in technicolor if you think you're going to get 4.5. This, this is really, I think, where even Canadians seem to draw the line on this uh, and say, come on, that's, that's too much too soon. Yeah, and it's uh, it kind of sets the bar for every kind of other negotiation and union negotiation that kind of comes after it. So I think that there is some probably some pressure from the federal government from their kind of provincial counterparts to not give out too much because obviously when other negotiations come up, they're going to use this as kind of a benchmark or uh, like a mark for them. But yeah, I think like you, like you said, it, it's, it has been a kind of tough, tough couple of economic years for a lot of Canadians. Uh, and a lot of them didn't get didn't get raises and and probably not as much if they did as 4.5%. Um, so it, I think that'll be a, a point that will probably take a while for them to resolve. I'm not too sure how far apart they are currently on those kind of wage demands, but on that point specifically, it seemed like that they were already kind of fall, far apart when this strike happened. And I don't know how much ground they've closed over the last few days. Yeah, historically, I mean, the stuff you talked about, uh, the premiums, you know, the, the night premiums and, and some of the other stuff, those, those seem to be the negotiable items. And if there's any headway made, it's usually on those items historically. So I don't know where they're going on that. They're still chipping at each other right now. So I, I don't know if they're, they're doing a whole lot of serious negotiations like this. Uh, but this seems as if, uh, this is, probably going to go on for quite some time. Uh, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. The, the government is, is looking ahead here and saying, we can't make this the standard for future negotiations. I mean, uh, this, this, is, this is going to be a rather lucrative settlement. If, if the union got everything they wanted today, including the back pay, as you mentioned, because this has been going on for quite some time, that's a big chunk of change. And I don't think the government wants to be able to you know, write a check for that every time a union comes up for a con- contract negotiation. Yeah, and, and the federal government came out when their budget came out uh, just a couple months ago, and they were saying that they're going to be try to be a, bit, a little bit fiscally responsible. They're going to cut back some spending in some departments. Uh, so they don't want to also, I guess, look to the public as well that they're kind of backing already away from what they said was going to be a little bit a period of more fiscal responsibility. Uh, so I think that's also kind of a, a bit of a pressure on the federal government. But as well, I mean, who knows how these kind of service disruptions are going to affect people's opinion of uh, Trudeau and the, the Liberals at, if they continue to go on for a, for a pretended or an extended strike period. Yeah, I mean, what do you mean I can't renew my passport? You know, what do you mean? Where's my income tax refund? Yeah, when, when people get angry, uh, opinions can change pretty rapidly, which is why we'll be watching, uh, because you guys do a great job of getting uh, the pulse of where we are right now. Uh, John, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the work that you guys are doing at Angus Reed, and thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Take care. John Rowe is a research associate uh, with the good folks at Angus Reader. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.